the company nearly got shut down three times because we didn't manage to raise funding, needing to pivot a couple of times with the product. But, you know, in the end, part of having a strong, committed team is that when the idea is not what you think it is, if there's commitment to the team, you continue pursuing your vision for a successful startup. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, Kaltura co-founder Michal Tzur. Michal Tzur is known to many as the Iron Lady of Israeli high-tech. Almost 20 years ago, while at New York University doing her PhD, she stumbled into her first startup, Sayota, which she founded with someone who would go on to become quite famous, Israel's 13th Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett. After the company was acquired, she founded her second company, Kaltura, and took it public in 2021. But Michal doesn't stop with tech. Alongside running Kaltura, she finds the time to volunteer at important organizations like the Israel Democracy Institute. In our conversation, what I learned from Michal is how she persisted with what she describes as outside-in innovation, a concept which she'll explain to us in just a bit. From an early age, Michal's parents provided her with inspiration. Her mother, Nomi, was an academic linguist turned environmental activist turned deputy mayor of Jerusalem who influenced Michal to follow her dreams not despite but because of her being a woman. Yet her entrepreneurial inspiration came from her father, Chaim. Chaim played multiple instruments, headed a music department on Israeli radio and helped revive Ladino, a language that combines Spanish and Hebrew. Michal, though, was influenced by her father for reasons invisible to the naked eye. My dad was blind, um, completely blind. I do remember walking with him as a kid when he still had limited sight, but he became legally blind probably when I was born already, but he completely lost his sight when we were very young. But it did not stop him doing anything. Were there moments where it was frustrating or that it limited him from doing things with you as a kid? As a kid, I never felt that he was disabled in any way because he was like the dad that could do everything. His entire life was journey and entrepreneurship because whatever could not be done, he actually started and did on his own. He could always pick up the phone and with this deep, calm voice, convince whoever he had to convince that that is what needed to be done. We used to go on vacation to a place called Shavetzion in the north of Israel, and it has a beautiful beach. I just remembered because I went to that beach not long ago. I remember that he'd go into the sea and he would swim and he would pick black small crabs, holding them in his hand, bring them back. We were all scared to touch them. Now, I didn't think through it. Oh, wow. How is he actually doing it without seeing it all, even just swimming there in the deep water? While as a kid, you don't really understand that. I think it was completely inspiring for us. And that's what really makes you understand that you can do anything. Wow. As a child, did you have any aspirations or dreams of what you're going to become? Not really. My parents drove us to be very independent, that we can invent Remember that my sister and I, when we were in sixth grade, we ran a summer camp for all of the kids in our building. Sure, a little bit of uh, risk tolerance of uh, parents in Israel back then. 
So you graduated from high school and you went to the army. Where did you serve? Yeah, I, I, so I served in the Ministry of Defense. Ministry of Defense. If you tell us, you, you'll have to kill us. I got it. Okay, cool. Was, was your military service meaningful? To a certain extent, from, I guess, a substance perspective, I'm very curious about systems, especially large systems and how they interoperate. I'd say on a personal level, I actually served it with a very good friend. One of the things we really enjoyed was actually a gym in oh, the building. Nice. And on lunch break, we'd go down to the gym and there was a ping pong table there. We played about an hour of ping pong every day. Whenever somebody else came there, we'd pretend not to know how to play ping pong and kind of <laughs> <laughs> propose a match. And it was just so funny. Who, did, to, who did you play with? I mean, some of them were, by the way, senior officers in the Ministry of Defense, but also a lot of bodyguards used to come and train there. It was so funny to see their faces because, you know, when you play an hour of ping pong a day, you become really good at it. So... Um, you would kick their ass. Yeah. Okay, that sounds a lot of fun. Okay, now I'm in a great mood. <laughs> So after the army, you end up studying law and economics at the Hebrew University. You go and clerk for the Israeli Supreme Court before traveling to New York City and going to NYU for your PhD in law, focusing your research on economics and game theory. Is that right? Actually, what I really enjoyed was evolutionary game theory, which is looking at survival of strategies. So I, I looked at the prevalence of different business and legal strategies and built an interesting model about... The prevalence of anti-takeover defenses, <laughs> if you're really interested. Oh, wow. Did you ever consider at that point to practice law? I was sure I'm going to be an academic. You're a very good student in law school, and then you go to clerk in the Supreme Court, and then you go and get a doctoral degree abroad. That's it. You go back and you become a law professor. Then when you graduate, you had quite an interesting pivot. My pivot was not when I graduated. So it was 1999, a friend called Ben Enosh, who was on swim team with me in Israel and went to high school with me, called me up. He had an idea for a startup. I did not know what startups were. I was fascinated because I realized that you can actually build global businesses within a very short period of time. That's the first time when it came together to me. This is something in, I think, the first or second class of economics. They introduce the letter K and they tell you it's technology. And they always tell you that technology actually allows to grow faster. That's when it, I really realized what it means. And then we decided we needed to have a team. He suggested that we meet with a friend from his military unit, and that person was Naftali Bennett. By now, Prime Minister Prime Minister Naftali, Naftali Bennett. Bennett. The way he introduced me was, you know, you should meet Naftali. Our friends in the military unit say that he will one day be the Prime Minister of Israel. Oh, wow. So I remember meeting, there was good chemistry. Then <laughs> we took him for a run, you know, just checking the playing field, <laughs> who runs faster. I'm assuming Bennett was a pretty good runner uh, himself. He had a hard time keeping up with us. <laughs> we were actually competitive athletes at that point in time. And we went for, a, I think it was like a 15K run or something like that. So it was a fairly stressful. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had to add on an, a strong technologist, my flatmate, Lior Golan, probably one of the smartest people I know. We got together as a group of friends. Each of us fell into a, a natural position in the early days 
Naftali assumed the role of the CEO. Did you vote? Did you all agree? Or? It just happened. When I look at a lot of startups now where they think in a very organized way about all of their decisions and make different agreements between them, and we just ran really fast forward. By the way, what was the idea? The first few weeks at Sera were probably the most fun that I can remember. We used to get together, the four of us, and spend hours thinking through ideas. What do we actually want to do? There were so many crazy ideas that were thrown around. We were not afraid of asking the dumbest questions and feeling comfortable to consult with smart people, not thinking that you're the smartest person all the time. We ended up deciding to develop a platform for protecting credit card purchases online. We did raise quite a bit of funding and actually had early customers adopt it. We very quickly realized that it wasn't a very good idea. We then had to find a new path. That requires a lot of listening, admitting that it's not a good idea. We're fortunate to have been this type of group that really did not try and defend a bad idea. The great thing about it was that we actually entered a very interesting market, anti-fraud and security for financial institutions, and that what allowed us to really innovate later on. I usually use the term inside-out and outside-in innovation, So our initial innovation was was inside out. We had this idea, something we thought the market needed. But then as we learned this market and spoke to all of the large banks and the fraud departments in the banks, then that's the outside in. We really learned what they need. That's when we actually developed our solutions that allowed us to become a dominant player in the anti-fraud and security market. And to this date, when you log into your bank account online, if you're logging in from a different device or you're doing a transaction that you did not do before, you're using Sayota's technology. It's risk-based authentication technology. So that was something very unique at that point in time. Which is pretty amazing considering that you developed this technology in the early 2000s. But also in the early 2000s, there was the dot-com crash. You must have faced some difficulty then, right? There was a point in time when we ran out of money altogether. What the investors told us is that we needed to bring additional funding to match a certain number. So we all invested certain amounts. And then Ben managed to convince his grandmother to invest about a quarter of a million dollars in the company as well. I don't think we all cared so much about the money that we invested. But it was suddenly Ben's grandmother. What are we going to do? The company must succeed. It's Ben's grandmother. You have to make it work. Yeah. Ultimately, we got acquired by RSA Security at the end of 2005. It was an incredible deal. Then a couple of months later, RSA Security got acquired by EMC, which now is Dell, by the way. And we didn't really understand the process there when it happened, but it was actually also due to the fact that they had acquired Sayota. And to this date, it's a very big operation. In retrospect, when you look at the acquisition, which was great and very successful, comparing it to what you're seeing now in the market, does that make you think differently? The market was very different at that point in time. From an ecosystem perspective, there were very few large Israeli tech companies. From a role modeling perspective, the art of the possible, there wasn't that culture in Israel of, oh, you grow a multi-billion dollar company um, here in Israel. I will say that several you know, weeks and months after the acquisition, some of us felt a bit of regret because we suddenly realized how fast it can grow in the hands of a large operation. Obviously, that's where the synergy lies. 
from a company that had 10 to 12 million dollars in revenue, the revenue grew to be 150, 160 million in the first year. That's a successful acquisition where the synergy actually works. Everybody, when they think of Sayoda, they think of, wow, a group of four young people. One of them became prime minister. They got acquired after five years for $145 million, but they forget that in between, there were six years of so many ups and downs. The company nearly got shut down three times because we didn't manage to raise funding, needing to pivot a couple of times with the product. But you know, in the end, part of having a strong, committed team is that when the idea is not what you think it is, if there's commitment to the team, you continue pursuing your vision for a successful startup. Wait, and so what, what, what about your PhD? I was formally doing my PhD, but not really. It was put on hold. When did you finish it? Like during your startup? I spent a couple of months um, at the end and I wrote it. That's when my, you know, my, my mom said, she asked me, so you won't be finishing your doctoral degree? And I said, no, I won't finish. <laughs> <laughs> If you spend focused two hours a day on something, you can get so much done. After the acquisition, before founding Kaltura, your second company, you actually go back to the U.S., to Yale, to pursue a postdoc? There was an opportunity to be part of a, an amazing program at Yale called the Information Society Project. It was just a great place to meet very smart people. That's where I met one of Kaltura's co-founders, Shai David. And then Shai connected with Ron, who was a childhood friend. We then connected to our fourth co-founder, Iran. Like uh, at Sayoda, we were four now very, very close friends. And we started a similar journey. We spent a longer time than we did at Sayoda thinking through new ideas. We were more patient. We spent, I think, four months going back and forth on different ideas related to gaming, environment, transportation. We had a crazy idea for, you know, helmets you'd wear inside a car. We were saying, well, you know, when you ride a motorcycle, you need a helmet. You know, there's so many people who get hurt in cars. Let's have helmets when you're driving in the car. So, yeah. <laughs> And credit goes to, uh, to Ron for that idea. <laughs> <laughs> credit. <laughs> We ended up focusing on video technology. The year was 2006, and YouTube was just acquired by Google. Nobody realized that video would become such a critical phenomenon on the Internet. Think of our day-to-day -day lives now. We learn using video. We work using video. We attend conferences using video. But in 2006, obviously, we could not envision all of this. But what we did have a good understanding of was that it would become very big. Our initial product was a collaborative video creation platform, but it was still too early. People didn't have easy-to-access video capture devices. We didn't have smartphones. But when we developed those tools, we realized that many other platforms were lacking those tools. And that's when we transitioned from having a B2C go-to-market to actually selling into other businesses. We then transitioned to education, realizing that video would become so mission critical for learning. And we pretty much took over the market. Kaltura is a very broad video experience cloud nowadays. So, you know, we power video for learning, education, marketing, collaboration, communication, virtual events, but also television. This past July, the company went public on NASDAQ. 
I read that there were a number of offers for acquisitions and one specifically for half a billion dollars that didn't happen. Can you tell us what was the story there? Ultimately, we decided that, you know, it's, it's best for the company to actually continue growing. I mean, in the end, when you build technology and you build products, part of what you really want is for them to continue to be used and reach as many users as possible. When I think about Sayota and the fact that hundreds of millions of bank account owners across the world still use our technology, that is something that is very inspiring for me. So when I think of Cultura's products and technology, you know, we reach hundreds of millions of users. If you attended a virtual event, you probably attended one of Cultura's. If you watch TV online, you're probably watching through our platform at some way. Or if you're attending any of the Ivy League universities, you're using Cultura. You want that to continue. It's something that sometimes you know will not happen through an acquisition. Part of taking the company public means that you can continue growing that vision, providing impact to so many users. We've gone through big journeys, you know, six years or so with Sayota and, and now 15 years with Kaltura and created some special relationships with your co-founders. What's your advice to young entrepreneurs of how to think about the founding team? Generally, the people that surround you in life are probably the most important thing. It starts with your family. And then when you start a startup, that's your second family. You're going to be spending a lot of time with them. You need to trust them. You will probably have a lot of arguments just like you have at home with your family, but you can disagree and continue working. So a startup is a crazy, it's a crazy ride. There are a lot of very tough days in the life of a startup. By the way, it's not only the co-founders, it's the broader team that works with you. Once you have 100 or 200 people in the company, it's getting everybody to be passionate and, and supportive of the directions and the moves. And I'll say one other thing. I'm always inspired by working with people who I think are definitely better than me in many things. I think that's what many of us don't always aspire to do. But in the end, a strong founding team is a team where everybody has a unique role and complements each other in a special way. Yeah. Michal, definitely when you started Sayota, it was not that fashionable to have a female co-founder. And still, I wonder what were some of the challenges for you, if at all, as a woman? And what are some of the things that you think can be done to get a lot more women in the space? When we started Sayota, it was not something that I was even aware of, that there are not any other female entrepreneurs that's how I was brought up, that I can do whatever I want. Uh, and <laughs> that's what I did. So it wasn't even a point of thought for me. But by the way, I can tell you, after Sayota got acquired, everybody wanted to speak to me as a female founder. And I said, no, I mean, I'm, I'm a founder. I then realized that it's perhaps an advantage. I remember spending time with Leah, my friend from Sayota. She's now at Coursera. We wrote quite a few posts about coming out as women, we called it. Feeling comfortable to come and speak out as women. Yeah, we are women. And actually, you know what? We're proud of being women because there's so many women who are engaged in NGOs, activist work, and doing it so successfully, by the way. But in the end, technology is a vehicle for driving massive change and, and impact globally in a very short period of time. You can drive a lot of change through technology. And I think as women are realizing that, they're becoming much more involved in this industry and in driving impact through it. So now I'd like to ask you a series of questions that I ask each of our guests. 
What's the one piece of advice that you wish to give the young Michal, let's say 30 years ago? Constantly learn. Try and meet as many people as you can and realize that the people you surround yourself with have critical influence on what you do and how you do it. What's the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? I'm not sure they get things wrong because I'm, I'm always very direct. I don't really keep any secrets, so... Why did they call you the Aaron lady of the Israeli tech? Yeah, well, maybe that's something they're wrong about. <laughs> I'm actually very emotional. I think they combined the fact that I did triathlons with technology. What are you currently obsessed with? There's been quite a bit of movement in Israel over the past years that I thought, you know, was putting at risk the democratical foundations of this country. I thought that we're becoming less pluralistic and less liberal in nature. I'm happy about change that is taking place in the society in the past since actually Naftali assumed the prime minister role with such a pluralistic government, which, by the way, is a bit like what happened at Sayota. We were so different. I will say something that has to do with my doctoral dissertation about evolution. You need to mix up ideas. You need to mix up types of people. In the end, you do need variation and selection can take place only if there's variation because otherwise you're not really selecting. Everybody's the same. So pluralism is really important because then you do have a market for a lot of ideas. And finally, what are you most optimistic about? I'm always optimistic about everything. <laughs> That's what you need in order to be an entrepreneur. You always need to expect the best to happen. When you expect the best, you drive for it to happen. Amen. Michal, thanks a lot for joining us today. It was my pleasure. So good to see you again. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit iTrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and Litraot. See you next time.